0: Our lives seem seem to be a constant battle between responding to God's desire to hold us fast and our energy to wiggle out of his grasp, and he bringing us back and we wiggling out. There seems to be nothing more natural in the human condition than self-reliance. We are independent... That's our default position. In fact, a visit to a room full of two-year-olds will give you sort of a vision of what the whole world looks like to God. Lots of people saying, me do it, myself. And fighting, fighting with him. You know, we, is it true that God helps those who help themselves? Is that a Bible verse? Why do we live like that then? Today we're going to look at a response to that question. Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, please? Mark chapter 9. We are following along in the situation, the story of Jesus where he had taken his disciples, three of them at least, up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe Mount Hermon, we don't know. Left the other disciples behind in Caesarea Philippi, likely, and said, I'll be back. We'll be back for you. And so we pick up the story there at verse 14 of Mark chapter 9. When they came to the other disciples, in other words, when Jesus and the three came back, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him i like to believe that that's what a Sunday service is like here at Calvary. That's why we gather, isn't it? Don't we gather here that you might be overwhelmed by the wonder of Jesus Christ and and run to Him? That's really the the DNA of, of what we are, who we are, and why we gather, at least it must be. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher... But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him or lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer seems appropriate, we should pray. Our Father, this is the word of God. We thank you for your grace to us and mercy and kindness. We thank you, Lord God, that you brought us here this morning. We thank you that you have led us already into the presence and throne room of the King of Kings. We thank you, Lord, for the wonder of Jesus Christ that has overwhelmed us already in the singing and praising and prayer. Now we run to Jesus, O Lord, because he has the words of life. And we pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to hear carefully what you have for us. Lord, it was only last week that we were reminded that the Father in heaven spoke that this is my son. I love him. Listen to him. So, Lord, we ask that the Spirit of God would cause us to listen to you this morning. May we listen to your word to us. Lord, I pray that we would obey what you teach us. I pray that we would respond with commitment and love for you. And I pray, O God, that you would strengthen our lives because we gathered this morning, Lord, with various levels of flaws and failures. We've come here this morning, O God, desiring your power in our lives. We've come here this morning because we need to be filled up with the things of God. We need you. And we thank you, O God, that you're gracious and merciful to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So my question to you this morning is, are you feeling powerless? Are you feeling somewhat like you might be missing out on God's power in your life? Human history is a long, futile story of man trying to depend on himself. If success ever does come, it's because the providence of God, God's grace, beats him to the incident. The total strategy of the average person is I can do it. Ignoring God, trying to live their lives themselves. But the question as we gather in a church this morning is not what the average person is thinking, but what about us? Are we living like those who don't know the Lord? Is it possible that we might be? This story has a penetrating uh, journey into our hearts. It should, it will. Because if you're feeling somewhat powerless or believe that there's more that God has for you, but for some reason, your spiritual game just isn't there, this story may offer some advice. So what are you doing? What am I doing to practically break myself from the habit of self-reliance? Because it is the natural default. I can do this. I've got this. Do you know its signs? Can you tell what it looks like? Trusting in self, I mean. Jesus had some pretty important things to say here in this particular story about trust and self-reliance and independence. And he offers this phrase, this one statement in verse 19, whereby the rest of this story pivots. Oh, unbelieving generation. So you say this morning to yourself, well, if that's the paramount phrase that we're looking at, then it really doesn't apply to me. Because I'm here this morning, I'm in church Jesus surely couldn't be talking about me. Well, we better look carefully. Jesus and his three disciples who had gone with him to the Mount of Transfiguration had returned from their road trip and their spiritual life conference on the top of the mountain. They got back and they found an unruly scrum of theologians and disciples and a desperate father and a demon-possessed son quite a scene, quite a skirmish was going on. You've got the religious skeptics, yet theologically filled. You've got a person with a very serious need in his his life and his family. And you've got the opportunity of a lifetime for the disciples to demonstrate their spiritual game. And everybody's a total failure. Disciples, by the way, had already been deputized to defeat demons. We only have to look back a few chapters, Mark 3, 15, Mark 6, verse 7, and 13 to 14. They had been commissioned to cast out demons by the Lord himself. What happened here? Why didn't it work here? Make no mistake about it, the violence of evil and wickedness is a stubborn rejection of Christ's rightful authority. This was a microcosm of the way the world really is. An unwillingness to bow to the king. Please understand this, that we know lots of people, lots of so-called good people and nice people out there, but, but if they don't recognize the authority of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, then then they are people who are embracing evil and wickedness and rejection of the King of kings. And as such, they should not expect to benefit from the blessings of Christ. So we're looking today, of course, at overcoming the futility of self-reliance it was oozing from this skirmish, this scrum, this crowd. Self-reliance and independence. We've got this. We can do this. Which is really the fruit of unbelief. Which is why Jesus said, oh, unbelieving generation, how long am I going to be here? This, by the way, was the The start of the early, early of the the last week of his time before the crucifixion, where he would be crucified, he would be buried, he would rise again, and he would be with them for a month or so longer, and then he would be gone to heaven. These were crucial moments in their training, crucial moments for the people who had the great benefit of having Christ, the Son of God, in their very presence, squandering it, Most commentators want Jesus in this uh, exclamation to be referring uh, to the unbelievers who were there. Others are uh, proposing that he was speaking to his disciples because they are uh, the most near reference in the text. In verse 18, it says, Your disciples, um, you know, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And then Jesus immediately exclaims, Oh, unbelieving generation! I am persuaded, having studied this text before and studied it again carefully, that Jesus is referring to everybody. And not just this little scrum in Palestine 2,000 years ago. I'm firmly convinced he's shouting this phrase at Calvary Baptist Church this morning. Oh, unbelieving generation. Generation. We're gonna explain why I believe that. I just wanna share two thoughts with you this morning, but they're two long thoughts, so don't get excited about that. Two important thoughts that I think the text, the direction the text takes us in. What is required to spot self-reliance in our lives, independence in our lives, and how to, how to see that change. So there's something for everybody. Are you unbelieving? You're going to say, no, I'm not unbelieving. I'm in church this morning. Well, maybe you are, and you don't know it. The first thing I see here is um, represented by the teachers of the law, the father who had the son that was demon-possessed, what I call positional unbelief. When Jesus is speaking, oh unbelieving generation, he is talking about, first of all, positional unbelief. Unbelief concerning what God can do. Classically what we would call as people who are in a evangelical church, unbelievers. He's he's talking about those people that in position are not believers in the King of Kings in the Lord of Glory. They're not believers. The desperate father, the boy possessed by an evil spirit, which mimics epileptic-like conditions. But more than that, he can't speak and he can't hear either. You have a group of religious authorities, leaders, teachers of the law, theologians, that seem to be more interested in debunking the teaching of this teacher called Jesus than they are in who the Lord really is. You say, that's, that's crazy. Theologians trying to debunk Jesus. We have, we have hundreds of churches today. Hundreds of churches today. People gathering in those churches, debunking what Jesus teaches. And then we have Jesus' elite gospel mission team. Nine disciples who've been hanging out with him and being trained by him, discipled by the Lord himself. It's not a better DC than that. And they've got no spiritual game. How? Why? How could that happen? How could you have the best discipling community leader ever as your trainer and instructor, and you have no spiritual game in a crisis moment. Well, demon possession, by the way, was uh, no um, shock to a first century audience. Please understand this. As the fear of God is chased out of the landscape of a culture, the vacuum that forms is filled by wickedness. I think we all are concerned about that living in Canada. As more and more as the years go by, the fear of God is chased out of our country. Demon possession and all forms of evil and wickedness will increase because the vacuum will be filled by Satan. That's how it works. The occupying forces of Satan that have gripped this life and the lives of lost people is what Jesus came to combat. He came to destroy the works of the devil and has deputized us to cooperate with him as agents of his power to rescue people from the clutches of wickedness. That's who we are. Violence and e- of evil and wickedness is a stubborn rejection of Christ's rightful authority. And so we have this moment where Jesus arrives, and satanically inspired self reliance has now come under his scrutiny and under his condemnation. I uh, was thinking about this text, and I put together a little formula. Combination of math and theology. Something for everybody. Um, for an engineer, Don, something for a theologian. But a satanically dominated culture plus an obliviously weak church equals all kinds of destruction and wrangling and failure, and embarrassment. That's precisely what we had in this moment. This little gathering was a satanically dominated culture coming to bear upon a obliviously weak group of Christians, and the result is mayhem and failure. What kind of a church are we? Are we an obliviously weak church? Maybe. Maybe. So this situation comes under the condemnation of Jesus, gives them a dire warning. In fact, the questions he asks, how long, how long, twice, are are somewhat referencing Psalm 95, 9 to 11. When God is frustrated with his people Israel, and he's asking the question, how long am I going to put up with you before judgment comes upon you? And as Jesus looks at these people standing before him, not recognizing, refusing to recognize who he is, he's asking the same question, how long, how long? And he looks at them and realizes that within 40 years or so, some of the people standing before him's bodies are going to be strewn over Judea as the Romans Purge the land as agents of God's judgment against Israel. His heart is broken. This is a hugely emotional moment for Jesus. How long I, am I going to be with you? Not long. How long am I going to be able to put up with this? God is an incredibly patient God. He has a limit. And so Jesus asks the father there, um, how long has this boy been like this? Tell me about him. And he says, well, it's, you know, he's often thrown him into the fire and the water to kill him. Jesus, by the way, isn't looking for some sort of medical diagnosis here, as if he somehow... Gets his clipboard out, and and as a doctor, is looking at the symptoms of problems here. (laughs) Every time Jesus does something like this, he's reviewing for us and for the Father who was there the state of helplessness we are in without Jesus. What have you been able to do? What have you been able to accomplish? This evil spirit has been trying to kill my son for years. Nothing. I've been able to accomplish nothing. I'm completely helpless and hopeless. And so he comes to Jesus and recognizes a special heart in this great teacher a heart of kindness, a heart of compassion, a heart of pity. but he doesn't believe in him. How do I know that? How do we know that? We see in the text that he says to Jesus, verse 22, but if you can do anything, if you can do anything, he believes Jesus cares, he believes Jesus is kind, but he doesn't believe in Jesus' power. Our churches are filled with people just like that. They're interested in the teachings of Jesus because Jesus is a nice man. He was a kind man. He did good things for people. They like to come to churches that talk about that. They like to hear the stories of a kind Jesus because all week long they're beat up by people. They love to hear nice stories about a nice person. But they sit in churches like ours, like Calvary, and listen week after week to the teachings about a nice Jesus, but in their heart of hearts, they don't really believe that he can help them. That's why Jesus exclaims, if you can. He didn't jump on the pity thing. He didn't jump on that statement or the help us. That wasn't what grabbed Jesus' attention. What grabbed Jesus' attention was that phrase, if you can, if I can, do you know who I am if I can? And so he says to him, everything is possible for him who believes. Now, this goes in all kinds of crazy directions, but it shouldn't. Let's not make it say more than Jesus is making it say. Jesus is making it obvious. He's talking about an unbelieving generation. An unbelieving generation in whom? An unbelieving generation in Him. Everything is, a, is possible if you believe in me, Jesus is saying. The object of your belief. Not that somehow you're believing in your ability to believe. If I could just believe enough, if I could just have enough faith, I could imagine something that would come to pass. That's magic. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the object of our faith. It is believing in the Christ of Christianity. If you would just believe and know who I am, I am the God who called the universe into existence. If I can... If I can take care of this demon-possessed son of yours, if I can, do you know who I am? This is positional unbelief. This is the story, the reality of the people of our world. This is the case of people sitting in these chairs, some of these chairs this morning in this room. You don't really believe. You don't really believe in Jesus. Perhaps you're heavily affected by some disappointing experiences in your life. I'm not sure. You're suspicious of what you hear. You're skeptical of the God who's presented to you. And just like the Father, you believe that Jesus is a kind person and nice to hear about. He feels comfortable and he feels restful and you feel peaceful when you come in here but you don't really believe in him. Jesus is making the point that anything can be done for the one who believes in a can-do, almighty, all-powerful God. Not because there's anything powerful or positive in believing in and of itself. But because believing in God, to whom nothing is impossible, makes everything possible for him who believes, or her. Immediately, it says here, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. And then he gives this powerful backstory statement, help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus has brought him to a place of repentance. This is genuine repentance. If you can, what does repent look like? Repent looks like this. I do believe. Repentance declares ourselves a total, impotent, helpless bust. And unless Christ helps us, In every way, including to believe, we won't. We can't. It's impossible. So he says, I believe, oh Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Take charge of my life. Help me chase away every remaining vestige of self-reliance and independence that I might throw myself entirely on you. Lord God, help me believe. Belief is the total capitulation of prideful self-dependence to a wholehearted belief to trust in Christ alone. Not only to believe in Him that He is and that He can, but to trust in Him alone to enable you to believe. It's a total surrender. He is a doubter asking the living Christ to believe versus a doubter who keeps looking for reasons to keep doubting. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. He cast the spirit out. And the disciples are standing there wide-eyed. Their mouths open. Their jaws have dropped. And now we get to the point that you really want to get to, most of you. Because we concluded at the front end of our discussion this morning that Jesus was referring to everybody, including the disciples. Calling the disciples unbelie- an unbelieving generation? Wait, wait, that can't be. I want to talk to you this, this secondly and very quickly about practical unbelief unbelief through self-reliance we're going to have to invite a sanctified imagination for a moment because we're only going to look at two verses and we don't really know very much other than they went into indoors and in private and something happened between the disciples and Jesus and we know only two lines a question and an answer so put yourselves for a moment, because it's not going to really drill itself into your heart unless you do. Put yourselves for a moment, if you are a believer in Jesus, put yourselves in the mo- for a moment in the shoes of, or the sandals, I guess, of the disciples. They're standing there, they're witnessing what's going on. They've seen, they've heard Jesus say, oh, unbelieving generation, and all of them looked at each other, and I'm sure they were saying, Andrew, he's not talking about us, so relax. Philip's like, well, and then Thomas is like, well, you know, who knows? But here's what they witness. Jesus calling people an unbelieving generation and then says to the Father, As he heals the son, everything is possible for him who believes. Now think of yourself standing there hearing that. Everything is possible for him who believes. And Jesus proceeds to exercise the demon out of this young boy. In their minds, they have to be looking at each other saying... Is, is he calling us unbelievers? Because he's, he healed this kid. He, he exercised this demon. And he said that it would take place for him who believes. So why didn't it happen for us? And they say, we, we got to ask Jesus this question. And so they're like, hey, um, I'm not asking him. You ask him. Like nine guys standing around. Let's get Pastor Nick to ask him. Pastor Nick's like, I'm not asking him. Go, go get Pastor Calvin to ask him. Surely he won't get upset with Calvin. Calvin's like, I'm not going, guys. So I notice in the text that it says um, his disciples, plural. They're like, like, let's all of us ask him. All nine go to him. And they ask the question, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus was like, I thought you'd never ask. You ever ask Jesus a question? He will answer you. And you might not like the answer you get. Why couldn't we do this? This is a huge embarrassment to us, Jesus. You commissioned us to cast out demons. Is your commission not good enough? Is it our theology? Is it our technique? Could we have maybe sung a song? Should we have had one more worship song today? Would, would the power of God rested on us if that had have happened? Is it all about technique and order of service? Is that what's wrong? Why couldn't we drive it out? Surely you're not suggesting to us that we are in the category of unbelieving generation, are you? Jesus um, may have said something like this to them. I found you busy debating theology, quibbling over technique with the teachers of the law, people who ought to know better, great theologians. But it's become apparent to me that while you're passionately committed to your theology, there's a real lapse in your life in terms of your spiritual disciplines. In particular, he says, <laughs> Jesus never seems to come directly. He comes indirectly, but it, it, it pierces your heart even more. Guys, this kind can only come out by Prayer. So they start looking at each other. Why didn't one of you say we should pray? What's wrong with you guys? You tried to be middlemen, Jesus says, in a spiritual transaction without permission and powerful resources found in me alone. And I'm going away soon. Is this how it's going to be? Out of, sight, out of sight, out of mind. You're going to, try to, you're going to try to go this on your own. You think that you can do this in your own strength? You think that you can take on the enemy, the wicked one, with your own strength? Beloved, listen. Calvary. The powers of wickedness are more than a match for us in our own strength. We're sitting ducks. We have no possible way of combating evil if we are depending on our own strength. Yes, I commissioned you to cast out demons. Yes, I'm giving you gifts. You didn't pray. Guys, you didn't pray. You know, the tragedy of this, had Jesus not have come along, is the Father in heaven was willing to exercise this boy of that demon if only someone would just pray. You mistakenly thought that the gifts given you were now yours to control and exercise, independent of Christ. Christ. Trusting in yourself. Listen, trusting in ourselves is a form of and a return to unbelief. That's who we used to be. That's who we were before Jesus. We relied on ourselves. We trusted in ourselves. We were independent, struggling, straining, trying to succeed, trying to have our lives changed, trying to be better people. How did that work for us? It doesn't work for us, trying to combat habits, wickedness, struggles, addictions, the pressure and forces of the, of the evil one. How did that work for us on our own? He looks at his disciples and say, "Why would you go back to that? Why, when I go away? Why would you go back to that, relying on yourselves? You couldn't do it before me. And why? Oh, why? Are you living like an unbelieving generation? Look at the father. Look at the skeptic teachers of the law. That's how they live. Self-reliant, independent. You just fit into the same category. You waltz up on your own strength and try to cast this demon out. You think they hadn't tried to do that? You think the father hadn't tried to do that? A catastrophic flaw takes place. And if allowed to go unchecked, at this point, would result in them training to be independent going forward. And if you're wondering why the father lets you fall flat on your face on a regular basis, I, I, I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for you. Why the father lets me fall flat in my face? It's a reminder, Rick, you're trying to go it alone. You're trying to go it on your own savvy? You're trying to go it on your own, relying on yourself, on your own independence. And I'm not going to reward spiritual effort done in your own strength. I'm not. I'm not because if I do, it'll train you to walk away from me. It will train you to get distance from me. I'm going to let you fall down so that you have to ask me again, Lord God, why didn't it work? What, what, what's missing And he'll answer you, you didn't pray. You didn't pray. You're not relying on me. It was ironic, I think, this morning that the lowest attendance in the prayer room before service was this morning. Not this morning, Lord. Not this morning. Want to be a powerless church? Just show up. Find a nice atmosphere, love the music, love that Jesus is a nice guy, go home feeling inspired. Powerless. Powerless. The battle of malign evil requires full reliance upon the limitless power of God. William Barclay doesn't always say theology I agree with, but in this case he did. Our gifts... Must be exercised in constant contact and dependence on Christ, or we will lose vitality. Our gifts become a performance from a corpse rather than a living sacrifice. That is powerful. Or we lose humility. Our gifts are used for the glory of ourselves rather than the glory of the Lord. And He will not stand by and let that happen. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. In the matter of prayer and the impossible, please, please, let's understand everything is possible for God. But He does not hand over sovereignty because we pray. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is in handing over sovereignty to you and to me. Saying, go ahead, you run the universe and tell me what I should do. That's not what He was saying. Jesus never said that. Read 1 John 5, 14 and 15. You've got to get the whole theology of what this nothing is impossible and prayer in the will of God is all about. Prayer is not the surrender of sovereignty to man. Prayer is the acknowledgement of sovereignty of God by man that we have to call out to Him that we are a bust in our own strength. But when we go to prayer... We are praying to the God of the impossible. What's impossible to us is not impossible to Him. And He's stating here that I will make possible for you what you could never make possible because I am God. That's all. I will make it possible. So come to me and ask me. Call on me. Pray to me. Ask me for strength. Ask me for strength two ways. Ask me for strength to believe that I will do what you're asking me to do. And ask me for strength to accept if in my sovereignty it is not best for me to do what you ask me to do. Both ways we need the strength of God to accept what God does in prayer. Either he will work through us as agents of prayer to accomplish the things that we ask him of, or he will work through us as agents of prayer to strengthen us to trust in him fully, even when we can't see and understand what he chooses to do. Because we believe in him, not contractually, not if you give me this, then I will believe in you, but rather, no, I just believe. Help me in my unbelief. Remember that we are agents of God's power and grace. We are not free agents calling our own shots in favor of our will or our wishes. Prayer to God makes the possible possible. Whatever God decides is possible is possible for the person who believes in Christ. Father, I pray this morning and ask you on behalf of two possibilities here this morning. One, Lord, I pray for those in the unbelieving generation of which we are all, who are positionally unbelieving. They believe you are kind. They believe you are tender, that you have pity, and that you create a nice atmosphere for an hour on a Sunday morning. But they don't believe in you. They don't believe that you can, that you are all-powerful, And that we must cast our entire lives at your mercy to believe. I pray, oh God, today that those here who are in that category would would identify themselves to you. You already know who they are. And that there would be a repentance in this place. Lord, in my heart, I don't believe you can. I really don't. And I want to. I want to believe. Help me in my unbelief. And then I pray, Lord, for the other group of us who 100% believe you can do anything. But our lives demonstrate practical unbelief because we don't pray, or we don't pray much. Our default is to trust in ourselves, trust in our own decisions, trust in our education, trust in our technique, trust in our theological knowledge, trust in our, um, our experience. We've done this so many times, we can just do it in our own strength. Lord, we can't. It makes a powerless church that has lots of technique and lots of theology, lots of education, lots of information, lots of knowledge, lots of training, lots of equipping. It has no power. Lord God, deliver us from that. We can't go into this year, deep into this year, powerless. So may may we as God's people stop living as practical unbelievers trusting in ourselves, and trust only in you, and demonstrate it by the passion of our prayer lives, oh God. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Like you, I've been over this particular event in Christ's life a number of times. This is the fourth exorcism that Jesus talks about in his Gospels. But the thing that really grabbed my attention this time, and it never has before, is the will of the Father and prayer and what was going on there. I want to leave you with uh, the impact of this. This was a crowd of people. There were theologians. There were unbelievers, classic sense. There were followers of Jesus Christ, close followers of Jesus Christ. And there was complete failure. Was it the will of God to exercise the demon out of this boy? Yes. It happened shortly thereafter. But why didn't it happen? Because there was nobody to pray. James writes... In his epistle, you have not, because you don't ask. I wonder how many times God would have done something, but he didn't, because we didn't ask, because we didn't pray. This one comes out only by prayer. Loved, if I could encourage you to upgrade anything in your life this coming year, It's upgrade your prayer life. That Calvary would be a praying church is is my heart's desire. That I would be a praying pastor. It has to start with me. That we would pray and pray and pray because there's nothing we can do here in our own strength of any value. And powerless churches are such a frustration. What God is willing to do if we would only ask and trust him, let's upgrade. Let's upgrade in our trust and demonstrate it by our prayer lives. I'm sure you, you need something from the Lord. Ask him. You know, every Sunday we like to gather here, our pastors. would love to have our pastor's wives here too, by the way. Other women, female leaders who want to be with us. We want to make this place a place of prayer. It'd be phenomenal if this would become a place of prayer. Surely you have things in your life that you need people to be praying for, that you need your leaders to be praying for. We hang around out here on purpose. Don't go so fast out that way. Come and pray. Let's pray this year. Ask God for things. He is a God who makes possible the impossible to those who believe in Him. So come and join us. Father, we, we thank you. We, we've, uh, we've been moved of heart by this text. To have our Savior stand over our church and say, oh, unbelieving generation, is, is pretty hard to take. But I think you're doing that, Lord. I think you've done that this morning. I don't want to be part of an unbelieving generation. I want to be the people that you won't ask the question how much longer am I going to be with you how much longer can I put up with you no no I want you to look at us Lord and say well done good and faithful servants you trusted in me and great and amazing and wonderful things happened because the father is willing but where's the prayer where's the trust we pray in your name In the name of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, our Savior. Amen.